Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. If you're listening to this before Thursday the 28th of September, you have still got time to get along to the Sugar Club in Dublin City Centre for the live Tortoise Shack podcast where I'll be sitting down with writer, actor, playwright Emmett Kerwin and best-selling author Aoife Moore at the same time. I can't wait. Tickets for that are available right now at eventbrite.ie and the link for that should be in the bottom of the podcast. If you can't make it along but you like what we do and you want to keep a left-leaning podcast platform going... Join us, patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link is at the top of the podcast, and it's the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. You're not just paying to keep this podcast free for everybody. You're making sure that we can stay independent. We don't need ads. We don't need sponsors because people like you put their hands in their pocket so everybody can listen and not have to worry that we somehow have to bow to editorial oversight or corporate interests. And if we've learned anything over the RTE debacle, it's that corporate interests are a pox on our media thanks for listening thanks for the support hope to see lots of you on thursday evening i'm shutting up now enjoy the podcast hello and welcome to the echo chamber podcast my name is tony groves and i'm delighted absolutely thrilled to be joined in present in person by friend of the pod longtime contributor but first time ever in the tortoise shack uh hannah mccarthy uh journalist hannah mccarthy hannah it's brilliant to see you thank you for taking the time to come in and see us Thanks for having me over, Tony. Oh, like listeners, if you if you are new to us, Hannah is um, a globe-trotting journalist, and I say that in a way that you probably think, "Wow, what a great life!" But she seems to always go to hot spots, which keep me up all night, where and causing trouble. Hannah, you go everywhere, whether it's Kabul or it's Ukraine or it or it's Palestine and Israel, uh, and you're generally based in Lebanon. But it's good to see you back in Dublin for a few days. Yeah, it's nice to be back for a bit and nice to actually have the cooler weather for once. Oh, yeah. I, I would imagine it's been a horrid, horrid few days in, in any of, like in Lebanon particularly, because, you know, it's not exactly well serviced with, uh, with utilities at the moment either. Yeah, it's, it's a quite a tricky place to work during August and July. So, yeah, it, I don't envy anyone who's there right now. Yeah, we are, um, Owen Gil Martin, who uh, is another uh, freelance journalist based in Madrid, has been home a couple of times this summer, I think, just purely to get out of Madrid <laughs> to escape the, the, the incredible heat. Um, listen, the reason we're going to chat today, uh, is because yet again, you've, um, you've paid another visit to, to Israel, Palestine, and your visit also overlapped with, uh, the tarnished uh, Michal Martin's visit to to Israel. Can I just ask, just in in overall sense, this is not your first time to Israel Palestine. So before we get into Michal Martin, what was your sense of um, how how febrile the, the situation is? Because we know, and again for listeners' benefit, we know that Israeli um, people have been out protesting for months over a judicial coup. We know that there's been a sort of can kicking exercise that's gone on there, but some of it hasn't gone away. And then we also know that in terms of Palestine, that there's been, we've seen more settler violence than we have in many a year. We've seen more, um, uh, detainments without charge than in any other year. And we've seen, unfortunately, more deaths in, in almost a daily rate, whereby it's been quite a, a bloody 2023. What's your sense? Well, within Israel, again, like there are still mass protests every week over um, the judicial reforms that are being pushed by Netanyahu's government and actually were passed in July. People may have seen kind of news coverage of the Supreme Court decision or the Supreme Court hearing uh, where 15 judges are basically debating on whether they're allowed to say something is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
again, there's kind of a huge amount of energy behind those protests. In terms of the West Bank, there's maybe maybe a slight lull in some of the bigger military operations and bigger instances of settler violence that we saw during the year when, you know, you had 10, 12 people, you know, killed in Janine in January and again in July. Um, in July, uh, the Israeli military, they used um, airstrikes for the first time, I think, since the Second Intifada. I may not be absolutely accurate on that, but, you know, in mm. a considerable amount of time uh, on a, you know, very densely populated refugee camp. It was it was a it was a what about a forty eight hour operation that yeah. as they refer to it and it was very uh, bloody. Yeah, and, and I was in Janine last week and, you know, they're still repairing, you know, parts of the streets and even in the city. I mean it's, you know, it's, you know, a a full city. It's not, you know, um it's not a militant cave, you mm. know, it's like where people live. Uh, I was in a theater, I'm writing a piece about the Janine Freedom Theater. Um, and, you know, they had kind of Israeli snipers uh, on the top of their um, theater, you know, members of the theater, like lost family. Uh, so, yeah, they're still kind of picking up the pieces from that. And 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 then when you like, I mean, you've been into Janine the last time you were there, the previous visit. I remember you 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 met with with um, a particular gentleman, um, and he was explaining the situation. A writer, and he was explaining the situation to you. And then soon after you'd left, there had been another raid into into the area, whereby you know. So it's 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 become a point whereby you know it's not unfair to say it's not unfair to say I believe that this is the most right wing administration, the Israeli government, and they have kind of given. Tacit approval to some of these, even you know, um, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not government troops. They're not IDF troops for the most part going in, but they are, they are given tacit ex- approval in it. I think what's worth noting, though, is that the military operations in Janine, they, they were there was a kind of crescendo that started before this new mm. right wing government, and you know, last year when there was you know a you know left government, you know, it was still one of the worst years for um, Palestinian deaths. So, I mean, people in the West Bank, I don't think they would necessarily say there's this dramatic difference. They say it's just, you know, it's it's a continuing trend. Yeah, they're just saying the le- they're just saying the the quiet piece out loud now. Mm-hmm. And I think this the, one of the biggest shifts maybe in the last year though that we have seen is that there are communities in the West Bank that are actually being displaced. I mean, the violence and the lack of protection from um, local security forces means you know they simply cannot stay there anymore, or they're not willing to risk. You know, their children being attacked by this. And, and I know Michal Martin met with um, a family that, you know, had kind of experienced that in the West Bank. Um, so that is like a change in the tempo and in the the level of kind of, you know, emboldenment we're seeing in mm. the settler movement. You mentioned Michal Martin there, and obviously he went out in his role to um, to to visit the areas in in both uh, Palestine and Israel. It you know it garnered some headlines, some of them negative, some of them positive. Um, what was your sense of the the his his trip, and and what kind of um, what was the 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 narrative um, or the the emerging narrative now with it, with a little bit of distance from it? So, I mean, going into the trip, I had a sense of like, he's not going to say anything, you know, particularly earth shattering. And I kind of feel I was right along the trip. You know, he kept very much to the EU position, you know, when, for example, there's an EU no contact policy with Hamas, which means they can't have any contact with um, the government in Gaza. Internally, with some kind of um, diplomatic groups, they, people would say that that's, you know, a mistake and like, 
at this point, you know, we need to have more dialogue. And f- for example, Palestinians would kind of question, you know, like, is it not, you know, a double standard to have, you know, a member of, you know, contact and indeed a diplomatic visit to an Israeli government, which includes a minister who's been convicted for supporting a terrorist uh, organization and convicted for inciting racism and having a no contact policy. Too, it was too extreme for the IDF. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, I asked Michael Martin this question. I said, is that not a double standard? And he said, no, he thinks the situations are different. So, you know, he wasn't taking mm. any bait. He wasn't, you know, showing any willingness to move on that point. Um, again, he stuck to kind of this, you know, EU position that, you know, collectively the EU should be agreeing mm. a stance um, behind the scenes. A collective EU policy on Israel and Palestine has been incredibly problematic and in generally just kind of described as a stalemate. Uh, we had a quite a activist EU ambassador to Palestine um, called Sven over the last uh, two years or so who really did come out and condemn um, violence both on the part of the Palestinian Authority who um basically had an activist murdered in, while it was in detention. He was in detention, but also against settler violence and Israeli military operations. And, you know, I, I spoke to journalists on the ground who said, you know, they would literally build articles around what Sven said. Mm. And, you know, he was very active in taking, you know, European diplomats out to schools that were at risk of being bulldozed, to, you know, the sites of military operations uh, and, you know, bringing a lot of kind of visibility there. And, you know, behind the scenes, though, what happened was, you know, he had a Twitter ban. Mm. Uh, he was recalled to Brussels reportedly for ambassador training, mm. you know, several weeks before he left his mission. This man is a 65-year-old veteran German mm. diplomat. Uh, I don't think he really needed ambassador training at that point. Mm. Um, and again, kind of between, within the EU diplomatic community in Israel-Palestine, there's kind of a division between people who are really happy that someone was actually saying something. You know, I heard from people that, you know, they would tell Sven stuff so that he would say it and then they could retweet him mm. because they didn't want to say it. Mm. But that's kind of the line they supported. And but, but that's but he 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 coloured outside the lines then in terms of EU's um vague policy. And that's what Brussels saw it as. So, you know, and then there's a line that would view him as he stepped outside the marks. We got frozen out of, you know, policy and decision making in Brussels, you know, didn't kind of know about decision making. So, you know, then there's a kind of branch of the diplomatic community. He would say, look, you know, your your role as a diplomat is to, you know, be on the inside. You're not supposed to go beyond your government. Mm-hmm. And I think privately people say, but with with EU policy, particularly with, you know, countries like Hungary, with the Visegrad for it, that's just not going to happen. Mm. And, you know, there's a tension in the, in the lack of inaction, the lack of action on Palestine and, you know, human rights abuses there when you look at Ukraine. And there's, you know, and we, and we talk about kind of Israel, you know, how can it call itself a democracy when you look at the West Bank? And there's also, you know, questions about the EU's principles when you look at Ukraine and then you look at Palestine like there's a tension there huge tensions I, friends of mine say it to me from Palestine they ask me all the time Hannah why is it different why are we different to to how the treatment of Ukrainians are because you know Ukraine are not an EU member <laughs> you know we know this and and yet it's very it is very different mm-hmm. and and I would say Michael Martin in general you know he would adopt the view, you know, you go with the EU. And I think in general, that's what he said. And, you know, when I asked, um, he he was also asked about, you know, whether Ireland would, you know, make a move to recognise Palestine. And he said, you know, no, we should really be waiting to do this collectively with Mm. the EU, which is kind of, I mean, that's just not going to happen in the, 
immediate term. And I think one of the kind of quirks at this point is like some of the biggest opposition would be from Eastern European states that have now basically allied themselves with Israel. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Hungary, mm. um, Poland, uh, Czech Republic. But actually, what's one of the quirks of history is that Hungary has actually recognized Palestine already during the Soviet Union. Mm. It would obviously not do that today. Mm. So it's kind of, you know, an interesting background point. But I think one of the other interesting points about Michal Martin's visit is on the first day we went to Yad Vashem, which mm. is the yeah. uh, National Holocaust yeah. Museum. Yeah. Uh, and he was there and he met with the head of the museum, Danny Dayan, uh, who's become under huge pressure to be kind of basically removed and replaced by Netanyahu's government. Uh, Danny Dayan isn't, you know, a leftist figure. He, mm. But he is, you know, he's very strong on, you know, remembrance of the Holocaust. He also was a previous member of the uh, you know, I think I can't remember the exact name of it, but basically the settler council for the mm. West Bank. Um, but basically Netanyahu, while looking for kind of allies in Europe to, I best support or maybe you know not at least not condemn mm. um settlement expansion in the West Bank, has been reaching out to Eastern European parties. Um, we saw one um in Austria. Um, it's the I think it's the Allied Nationalist Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, I might, might have gotten the name slightly wrong. Uh, they have a history of Holocaust denial, uh, of anti-Semitic views, and the, uh, the Israeli government previously had a position of boycotting them. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw, I think two weeks ago, the Israeli ambassador meeting the head of this party along with the head of the West Bank uh, Settler Council. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're seeing is Netanyahu trying to shore up you know, support or again, at least... Or enough of a block to make sure that they can't um, act in 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 cohesively. Again, like, you know, and I, I'm sure you've had people already on the pod talking about, you know, legislation that would, for example, like, you know, ban products produced in settlements mm. uh, in the West Bank, um, you know, take more punitive action. Um, or like EU sanctions against some of the illegal settlement activity that we are, we're seeing. Uh, and that's that's basically impossible at the moment with that kind of Eastern European bloc. And then German hesitance for historical reasons mm. um, to kind of, you know, maybe take a strong line against Israeli abuses. And there's also the, you mentioned the the war in Ukraine. And one of the things that that has caused is obviously a pivot. Well, not not just that caused it, but there was a pivot away from um, the new Cold War between the US and China meant that the likes of semiconductors and these became more viable, that, that we didn't want to source it from that. And, it, and Israel has a, ten, a, a really decently um, expanding tech sector that is uh, something that, that people are going to want to tap into. Uh, the trade, whether they say it or not, is an important piece of this. It's, semiconductors are also a huge point of trade between Ireland and Israel that have picked up since Brexit happened. And I mean, I feel like there was kind of some parroting when we spoke to Israeli officials during Michal Martin's visit that, you know, there's no trade mm. between Ireland and Israel. You know, we'd like to see more of it. You know, no one really cares. Ireland doesn't really figure, you know, it's too small and insignificant. When actually the figures, the trade figures between Ireland and Israel, and it's been reported in Hertz recently as well. I think, I can't remember if it's the, I think it's like the fourth had... It's, it's one of the countries that has had the highest increase in trade with Israel mm. in recent years. And you know, Michal Martin has kind of talked about it a lot, but, you know, there's new direct flights between uh, Tel Aviv and Dublin now with El Al, um, Not which is... for bringing Robbie Keane home when he wants to weekends. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but, um, which is the Israeli national airline. Um, 
So again, there's a lot of um, Israelis who work in the tech sector mm. in Ireland. So there actually are significant trade links. I think it's still, again, worth noting that there doesn't seem to be an appetite from you know Irish businesses to go on you know public mm. trade delegations they're, and missions like in they're, Dubai. They're, yeah, or they're not going to show up at a conference for organised for the, the Irish-Israeli trade conference. They're not going to show up and, and do that because it's not something that they court, but it's happening. And it's happening behind the, they don't want to do it publicly. Like, mm. for example, you know, lots of people would, you know, meet with the Israeli ambassador here. They're not posting it on Twitter and they're not posting it on LinkedIn. But like on the lower level, it is happening. Mm. Uh, and I think there's a kind of, while this is going on, and I think, you know, overall, this can often bring stability. But I think when you have a situation when, where both governments are so unstable, and when you have a government, particularly the Palestinian Authority, that just doesn't seem to be able to kind of use, you know, you know, say this is a business opportunity, there's an opportunity, you know, with normalization of Saudi Arabia, what are they actually going to demand? And, and I know some diplomats said quietly, they thought what they were hearing were some really low level demands from the mm. Palestinian Authority. You know, they weren't, you know, thinking big yeah. or for you know how they can actually we, demand the we, most, we, we we probably some of them would settle for a bit of a reliable electricity source and and access to medical supplies. And I don't think Palestinian Authority worry about that. I think they and and what I will again just say is the electricity and in general those services are still better in the West Bank. But the Palestinian Authority, it's it's not reflective of the Palestinian class no. and you know the resources, money, and access that they have. You know they will travel in and out of Israel whenever they want. Um. The theater I went to in Janine, one of the early films they did was uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm, mm. and you know they talked about, which obviously talks about you know a, a farm under occupation and the relationship between people and the occupying forces and how some members of the farm you know, you know collaborate, yeah. and you know they use that to talk about the relationship between the Palestinian Authority mm. and Israel and the Palestinian people, which and it got cute criticism and pushback mm. from. The Palestinian Authority. The PA, yeah. But the PA, uh, as I've said off air to you, I, I don't know how representative they are of the people's voice in, in the most part. I mean, you talk about the, the freedom of movement people in the PA can experience. I have friends who can't visit their, the places they were born because uh, they're, they're not privileged enough. They don't have the passes and they can't go because now those places are now settled settlements. You yeah. Know? So so it's a, it's a very different thing. But in terms of Michal Martin himself, how do you feel he conducted he, he he conducted himself because like there was no political gain in so in so in a way of of, of you know the leader Fianna Fáil going out to, to to on this visit there's no you know it's not something that he's he's uh, he's, he's going to see a bounce in the polls for but it's just I think at the time and again I think before and during the visit my sense is you know this is the kind of visit he has to do because he's minister of foreign affairs and you know, Palestine is such a big issue for um for the Irish public. And I think what's one of the interesting things just to note, and people will be generally aware of it, is that, you know, the Irish position on Palestine does not change depending whether Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour, Sinn Féin are in power. You might see a more activist approach on, on with Sinn Féin, for example, but in truth, the, the position is largely there and it's not that it swings left or right. You know, in France, you would have parties that would have very different views on Palestine and mm. Israel. Um, that means that, you know, th there's not necessarily a huge room for manoeuvre in terms of what you're going to say. You know, the position is known. 
but he also has to be seen to be going. He gets a huge number of parliamentary questions. Mm. So I guess just broadly, you know, as a politician, it's a visit he has to do. Mm. Um, and again, when I asked him, when he was asking you questions about, you know, why hasn't Ireland recognised, you know, Palestine yet? And he's, his view again was that, you know, we should be doing this collectively uh, with the EU and, you know, Ireland's, you know, a small country, you know, it's it's much stronger if we have more people doing it with us. But we now saw last night at the UN, Michal Martin said... That Ireland is going to consider its position on whether it recognises... Yeah. And again, so now, you know, there's a question mark whether there was actually some more, it was actually more of a policymaking trip than maybe it seemed. Mm. Um and again, I don't know to what extent he, you know, did he, he go into that trip? Kind you, of. You, you said he went into that trip, and again, forgive me, but you you said he visited a school in Ramallah. You know, you'd wonder if his eyes were opened by some of this that he'd seen with, with his own. You know, maybe, maybe. Um, but uh, I I put it to you that you know, again, we know we have a track record of supporting. Palestine, I think we've uh, I think we've historic reasons for that. Ireland as a, as a, as a, as, a, as an island of Ireland, we have reasons for that. But um, we also have, you know, failed to put through the occupied uh, territories bill that we that was that was brought forward. It was it sat on the shelf, um, and we've we've you know we've hemmed and hawed about what 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 and everything we've done has been called a provocation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it is a little bit like walking on eggshells. So yeah, and and I would say none none of these kind of policy changes are done flippantly or because one politician or minister make, makes a big decision. And you know, I'm sure this has been a policy that the DFA have been working on internally for a while, and you know, cabinet have been discussing. Do you think you know it's probably not a, a bad policy to have if you're you know fighting Sinn Fein for votes? Mm. If I was to be cynical, at the same time, if I was to take um, I guess more. Um, I think to be kind of more fair to Michal Martin, I think the the two meetings that might have again, you know, pushed him in the direction or felt a bit made him feel a bit more like that, you know, it was a good time to move forward with this would be. I know he met with a family uh, that had been uh, of herders who had been displaced mm-hmm. quite violently by Israeli settlers, and I think that would have definitely, mm. I think, reminded him that you know there's violence being used against people and they're being moved from their homes and like that's and it's a change that we've seen recently uh, I know he also met with two parents from the parents circle uh, anyone who's read uh, Colin McCann's A Paragon mm. will be familiar with this um, this group and it's basically a, a group of people uh, parents from both you know Palestinian communities and Israeli communities who've lost children to violence mm. um, so you know uh, militant attacks um, Israeli military operations um, and again, you know, for anyone who's looking to read something on uh, the conflict, you know, that book of Paragon is it, it's a beautiful book. Um, but you know, we you would have thought that something like that group, you know, yeah, would impact. Um, yeah, but you would have thought it had it was it's a kind of ecumenical yeah. group, and you would have thought that this gets a bit of support and people talking about you know their children who've died and they used to do a lot of talks in school, in schools in Israel, hmm. um as well as in Palestine. But, you know, what we've seen recently is they've been basically banned from schools in Israel. Mm. Uh, and again, we, we know Michal Martin has had his own personal tragedies in his own life, uh, and I'm sure it was a very kind of moving meeting for him. But, um, you know, I think the fact that we now have a climate in Israel where they're banning an organisation like that, and I think there's a sense of like, you know, do you wait for consensus within the EU that's not going to happen? Or... Do you kind of make a move forward 
<laughs> and it's a bit like what I was when I was talking about that like EU ambassador who kind of yeah. went a bit beyond. Mm. You know, people say you know he shouldn't have gone beyond. You know, he's lost his credibility. But the alternative was literally nothing. But we're going beyond. He opens a space where we can have a conversation about things that we're. we're and and I yeah, forward. and I I genuinely I, I spoke to Palestinian officials and you know Palestinians who kind of would have dealt with him, and they were really genuinely kind of inspired and felt like they had finally had someone. Mm. And again, he didn't, it's just statements, you know? And I mean, obviously we could, we talk about, you know, how people are always just shocked and appalled and that he was saying that, but you know, he did it with energy. And I mean, an EU country, you know, recognising Palestine now, mm. um, we know that like... Well, I, I can tell you that you, you two things. One, it's again, I'm going to go on the opinion side on this. Um, it actually isn't a bad idea if Ireland was to do it now politically because... Sinn Féin will make it a, 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 an item in the programme for government. Like, mm-hmm. they absolutely will. They, they'll add it to the programme for government. So, so that will, so this is another way of saying, well, we're actually, we're the change within. So it's not a bad move that way. And it will have more or less universal support bar, you know, a certain cohort of people. It'll be, it'll be the majority, um, it'll be majority popular. Um, but I do think Ireland could be doing more within the EU to actually call for, um, you know, ceasing of some of the trade or at least, you know, let's look at how we deal with what, what sanctions we can do because we saw what happened, unfortunately, once the war kicked off in Ukraine and the, the deals that were done between the EU and Israel that, that we were taking fossil fuels trebled, I believe, in, in like less than 18 months. So I think, uh, so, uh, I think on the EU-Israeli relationship, I think people, I, I spoke with some senior kind of people about this earlier in the year, and I think the energy relationship is maybe overemphasized, and it's still, I think, mostly a security relationship, and that's why Israel remains kind of important to the EU. And that's, I think, predominantly because of Iran supporting Russia in the war, and that security dynamic. Mm. And I think, you know, when I've spoken to people, they've said, look, it's really, it's really the security relationship from that perspective. I, accepting that the energy thing's been overstated, obviously, um, security and, and that, but you mentioned Iran and there's also, you know, there's also, um, attempts going on now to, to build other allegiances, whether it be Israel, Saudi Arabia. We've seen what's happened with the Emirates. We've seen where these things are happening and the Palestinian question. Despite what we read about, you know, whether it's going to be something that will be talked about, it really hasn't featured in, 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 in that. And if you was to be actually say something positive for once in my life about, about Bibi Netanyahu, he's played this quite well in, in, in that regard in terms of trying to, um, even to the point where, you know, they're, they're building an alliance where we'll actually could actually cut out the Palestinian question in that awful phrase. So I'm, I think I, I've read analysis and I, on the, the, this planned normalized relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel that I think is, is probably some of the kind of fairest analysis, which is neither the Palestinian Authority nor the Israeli coalition are stable enough and truly have the backing of their communities to be able to deliver on any promises they make. And, and I think that is really fair. And I mean, mm. when people talk about the Northern Ireland peace deal, they talk about, you know, you know, figures emerging who had the backing of their community and who, you know, would follow them. I just think this Israeli coalition government Mm. does not have the backing of all Israelis 
and it isn't even reliable internally. So we've seen Netanyahu has had several visits to the UAE cancelled because Itamar Ben Gavir has, you know, gone to Al Aqsa Mosque, which he's not supposed to do um, as a as a Jew- Jewish worshiper. Mm. Um, well, he this is Mister <laughs> Incitement himself, by the way, folks. In case you're 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 you know, and he's the guy who. Um, in the in the in the Knesset was calling um, Arabs pigs and um, making sheep no- noises at, at, at people as well. You know, um, as a kind of um, clicking sound, it sounds as if he was calling um, sheep, which is you know this is the type of classy guy he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Palestinian Authority as well. Like you know, they travelled three kind of senior members of the Palestinian Authority travelled to Saudi Arabia earlier this month to mm. talk with Saudi Arabia about what concessions could be offered, but. I think Palestinians would have very little confidence that they will, you know, go far enough, they won't abandon enough. And again, just they don't have the support of their people and the people do not have confidence in them and to deliver. Mm. And the relationship between the Palestinian Authority and um, Israel is so conflicted and so self-serving for the Palestinian Authority's government and i say this again they you know they're obviously again a, a government under occupation mm-hmm. and you know i accept that that's going to you know limit some of their abilities but it's it's a uh, it's not a negotiation table that i think a lot of palestinians would have confidence in no and and i think that's a fair comment and i also think that just to, for also for clarity though we need to point out under international law the obligation to look after them, to look after people who are under occupation is by the occupier as well you know so the pa is simply a conduit for for the occupation as well in many ways and that's that's international law and um, i just be conscious of um of you know the your, i think you make a really good point how fragile this coalition is even the one thing that will unite the israeli coalition currently is the ability to is the is the the knowledge knowing that if they fall they're you know they're they're all in trouble because you know there's there's charges pending or there's investigations going on into into members of of the cabinet we Netanyahu himself has has been under investigation for for fraud for for aspects of manipulation with the media all of these things are, are all hanging out there if they fall you know, it 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 could actually um, become a a bigger issue for them. So the one thing that might unite them is just the fear of um, the fear of, of 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 oblivion afterwards. Yeah, and I think what I will still say is Israeli society is very strong in terms of their national identity, and you know, when bigger events happen, they will often still come together. But again, I think there's a real what you are seeing is still that breakdown in trust between you know the more le- liberal kind of left. Kind of more liberal than left, to be honest. You know, that's there is some left, but like you know, you go to these. You you went to the marches. Yeah, the last time you were there, there wasn't many Palestinian flags. Yeah, and like again, it's mostly smaller groups. You know, I did see there were college students. I saw a group, and then there were some older um, Israelis who were protesting with the uh, Palestinian flag. But I mean, it it is mostly very much a focus on judicial rights and in terms of how that's going to affect women's rights. Mm. Um. There's also resentment among um, more left-leaning Israelis about the fact that, you know, religious um, members of the very religious um, wing of society may get a complete exemption for military service. Um, And I think there's this kind of fear that, you know, elections will become a winner-takes-all scenario where, you know, 
if you know a woman in Tel Aviv, you know, votes in the election, this the next election, it could be, you know, an end to her, you know, ability to work freely or easily. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's worrying. I think someone said so, that. So, so these are human rights marches above. Um, you know, well, self Israeli human rights. Yes, that's, that's what you phrased it a lot better than I did. But yeah, I agree. And you see that because these are the concerns that they've had. As you said, there was a liberalization of the democratized part of Israel that exists. Mm-hmm. But the, but that part that exists currently was always in conflict with the ultra orthodox and, and some of these demands that have been to become more conservative. And now the, uh, now the 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 foxes in the hen house. What, what's also kind of amusing is at those protests, you'll see Israelis holding posters saying, "You know, Israel is not Hungary. Israel is not Poland," mm. which again is also one of these kind of issues that you have an EU which has members who you know are falling, you know, have a falling democracy and becoming rating, more, becoming more autocratic. Yeah, um, at the same time as you know. You know, having this stance on Ukraine, and then you know, having this different stance on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We never really dealt with that, and I don't want to. I know you're you're kind of you're you're, you're an actual real working journalist, so I'm not going to ask you to go into speculation. But it must be a tension when you visit even Palestinian communities in Lebanon. Must see it, and other communities that are the, the diaspora must see the difference of tre- treatment to Ukrainians who are you know seeking refuge in asylum across the EU and the plight of the Palestinians, it must be something that that calls it is 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 almost a well, you know, we want to say to you because you're a Westerner, you know? Basically every conversation I've had this year, they um with Palestinians, they have brought up the Ukraine conflict. Uh I think it's less focused on, you know, the asylum. I think it's more about, you know, conditions in the West Bank and, you know, why are we viewed as terrorists when, you know, Ukrainians are viewed as, you know, these kind of brave freedom fighters. Mm. Uh, one point I think is really kind of worth noting, even just about differing treatment is, you know, there's this talk in the news about how Israel has to make a big effort to kind of treat uh, Arab American citizens yeah. uh, more fairly because Israel wants to join countries like Ireland and have an Esther waiver program. And I think one of these kind of big examples of some of the unfairness in the situation is highlighted by the fact that if Israel, you know, is allowed onto the Esther waiver program with the US, you know, Israeli settlers in the West Bank would be able to travel to the US visa free, mm. while you know, Palestinians whose land they may have taken or you know who live right beside them would not be. Mm. Um, so I think you know, there's some very stark yeah. differences in the way that Israelis and Palestinians living in the West Bank are being treated. I'm pretty sure even for Schengen visas, Israelis, it's a lot easier for them than Palestinians. Oh, look, I mean, you, I've, I've um, spoken to people who wanted to travel to, to Dublin and found it virtually impossible. You know, the route out via Egypt was made difficult, the route out, you know, there's always, there's always these issues, but you're quite right to point out that if Israel wants to improve conditions for itself, it may have to give some more rights to its Arab citizens. And that sticks in the craw of some of the current government, particularly uh, like, I mean, you were talking about um, the idea of freedom of movement, you know, and in terms of the ability to move around the EU and and that, yes, I, I, I'd have to accept that it is much easier for, for them to do. But at the same time, 
I'm just, I know it's, it's, forgive me folks for saying this, because it's not, it's not even on the same level, in my opinion. But Ireland at the moment is still in the energy charter treaty, which is, you know, a really bad idea for if we're going to take any climate action that's going to be meaningful. Uh, and we've taken the same line with this. We've said, we'll move when everybody moves collectively. No other countries have joined, have left. You know, the Portuguese have left recently. I know the Dutch have left. I know the French are going to, are working away. We need to get out of this now. We need to act. We need to, uh, you know, protect ourselves from some of these fossil fuel companies being able to sue us for, for, um, their profits into the future. We need to move on that. But like on the same on this, it's the same sort of principle. We should be able to stand up and actually be, say, we have, you know, I'm sorry, uh, Hannah, for going on a rant, but behind your head, there's a poster for the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. If you ever visit the Free Dairy Museum, the side wall is covered in a Palestinian flag. You know, there is that kind of solidarity between the Irish experience and the Palestinian experience. So I just think it's, it's, it's mad that, that, that little bit of political capital, we, we actually should act unilaterally in this case and, and take some, and take some risk in terms of, um, I don't think you, you you come out too badly if you got on the wrong side of Benjamin Netanyahu um, in in the court of public opinion. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I think uh, the Israelis were quite concerned that Michal Martin was going to you know make some statement or mm. announcement during his visit. I think they were particularly concerned about you know maybe something about Jerusalem, which. Um, you know, is not recognised as the capital of Israel as until, by EU until, countries. Until Trump did it. <laughs> yeah. So, but but with EU countries, the EUs all have their official embassies in, in Tel, Tel Aviv. Aviv yeah. However, you know, Israelis like they they're constantly joking with EU ambassadors. Yeah, just move your embassy there. And actually, uh, earlier this year, the Israeli foreign minister announced, "Ah, oh, Hungary is moving its embassy to Jerusalem." Hungary quickly denied that it was doing that, but it's clear that there's some discussions going around, that, you know, in the background. And we've seen other smaller countries, you know, no one as significant as the US, you know, Papua mm. New Guinea. Um, yeah. Is it Nicar- Nicaragua or something like that? Yeah. But, you know, so and again, so you've got these non-aligned kind of, countries, shall we say? Yeah. So you, they've got kind of some smaller countries and like, you know, they're, but it's, they're very much pushing it. Mm. Um, so at the same time, I think. You know, when you're seeing that kind of slow move and kind of maybe erosion of like, or, you know, yeah. Israeli, Israel's trying to divide the EU position anyway. Mm. And I think it is really because of how EU courts work and the fact that, you know, e- other countries' law can be persuasive. Mm. I think the fact that Ireland does recognize Palestine, you know, that can have, you know, unintended and kind of, you know, beneficial consequences for how kind of violations of Palestinian sovereignty mm. and Palestinian rights are recognised in other EU courts. Um, and I mean, it's the foundation. Yeah, it, beyond, from, it starts, it's a start, it, it goes beyond a, a symbolism and, and goes into where pe- maybe you can attest some more rights you can mm. try. Um, and I, I, look, just be, before we wrap, first of all, thank you again for coming over. Um, second, second of all, everybody needs to be following you, especially your Instagram stories. You, you, you post the most amazing stuff. Is there, how, first of all, should, where should people be following you, checking out your stuff? And what have you got coming up that people need to be reading and looking out for? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram and, uh, Substack occasionally. Um, I've got a couple of articles coming out over the next kind of week or two. Um, maybe three on the Irish Times from with kind of some pieces from Palestine. Um, so and you recently covered Kenya. 
yeah, and I've got some reporting. I've been a bit slow with some of my reporting, but I have some pieces on Kenya coming out. Um, so yeah, hopefully people have a read. The, 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 I know, and then just before we wrap, I, I'm conscious that we've talked about it in kind of, um, you know, the, the in terms of the conflict. One of the things you said to me that interests me um, before we started recording was that, you know, the ordinary Israeli society, for want of a better term, in places like Tel Aviv, there's still high levels of poverty. It's not this, you know, it it's not this ideal state anyway, to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Um, how is how much of that is is also really the some of the basis of the political uh, issues that you know the the, the polarization? I think it's hard to say because again, I will still say Israel Israel has this amazingly strong national identity, and people really do come together more than you would expect, mm. and and they have a very strong sense of national identity. Um, but I mean. There's definitely there's definitely something of a split happening because, again, it's a winner's take all approach to elections. And there's a significant group of Israeli society who feel they could lose everything, you know, in the next election or, you know, because the Supreme Court cannot, you know, strike down kind of, you know, legislation on women's rights, on LGBTQ rights, um, on, you know, secularism and. And, you know, even just within society, like as in a significant portion of the very religious um, Hasidic community, um, you know, they don't work, uh, they would have quite high rates of poverty as well. Mm. Um, So just even from a kind of economic point of view and society point of view, um, how that works as a kind of whole society, you know, there's a tension there Mm. and and I'm, you know, it's not going to go away. Mm. Even, you know, if the Supreme Court makes, you know, a decision that opposes the judicial reforms, like that's not a kind of short-term thing no. that's about to be solved. So yeah. there are some bigger questions, you know, about how Israel evolves as a society. Yeah. Oh, look, Anna, I really appreciate it again. Uh, do check out her work and thanks so much for your time. Uh, listen, folks, we have um, scheduled a conversation with a man who's undertaken his um, his uh, his own on his own um, to to try and help improve the water in our own Liffey because we did a lot on Loch Ness recently. Uh, but there's an, an interesting gentleman going to be joining us in the next day or two to talk about the works that he's doing upstream on the Liffey to try and improve the water quality. And it's not a, it's not a construction type thing. It's an actual you know natural restoration. So I'm going to be enjoy that conversation. Talk to you all very very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.